0: Good morning. You, it's it's been wonderful to worship our God together. Uh, already, love singing with you and uh, reading the Scripture together earlier. Boy, Psalm forty six. Could there be a better Psalm? Well, there's one hundred and forty nine others, so maybe. But uh in, in a time in which you particularly need a stabilizing force, a stabilizing person in your life, uh, God is our refuge and strength. And uh, what, a, what a privilege it is, what an honor it is that God has brought us into his family. We don't deserve any of this. This is grace, and it's a, a, a praise that we give to him. Uh, we are often exhorted in the Psalms to bless the Lord, to lift up our praises to Him. We've done that. May we do that every day of our life. Uh, I enjoyed being with uh, many of you during the uh, earlier hour today uh, in the, the uh, Sunday school Bible study. Don't know what uh, your church would call it, but the earlier time together, and uh, that was a, a privilege for me. And I talked a little bit about what we will we, what we will be doing. In our Bible conference, we are going to look at the first chapter and a half or so of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to go to John's first letter and chapter 1. We're going to look at the first four verses. If you are not familiar with where to find 1 John, there are a couple of ways you can do that. The easiest way is probably it's almost the very end of the New Testament. So go to the end and just go back a couple of three or so uh, books and you'll find it. The other way is find 2 John and go right before that. But uh, 2 John is going to be a little more difficult to find maybe. Uh, And thank you for laughing because that was very lame. But uh, thank you for, for doing that. 1 John, we are going to be studying... A lot of these verses, this is so, uh, this is one of those, um, one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. And I'd like to share with you what God has been teaching me from this very important letter. Well, we're going to begin where we should at the very beginning of this letter. I'm going to read our text. I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open. Because um, I'm going to keep referring back to it. I want to show you, I'm not making any of this up. This is coming from the Bible. Verse number 1, the apostle writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. jesus christ and these things we write to you that your joy may be full i'd like to begin this morning by asking you a question it's a question maybe you have been asked before it's perhaps a question you have supplied the answer to before for others maybe you've never been asked this question well you're going to be confronted with it this morning and I think it's a question that is particularly needed in the church in America today. And here's the question. What is a Christian? Have you ever considered this question? What is a Christian? I think it's a particular problem facing the church today because in the church, particularly in America, there is much confusion over what a Christian is. If we were to take the time, we will not, but if we were, and we were to publicly ask each one of us, including me, what is a Christian? I wonder what type of answer, if we were all honest, I wonder what type of answers we might get. Someone in here might say, well, Andy, I'll go ahead and tell you what a Christian is. I'll be the first one to to answer. You know, there's an assault on the family today and the institution of marriage and and uh, uh, so i would say this that what a christian is is someone who holds to family values the truth is that our government needs to keep their dirty hands off our children that's what a christian a christian is someone who clings to family values someone might say that perhaps and then maybe someone would say, well, that's good, but maybe it doesn't go far enough. Really, Andy, what what a Christian is is someone who is a social conservative, someone who is really concerned about the uh, the conservatism and, and what our nation used to be. A Christian is someone who loves America, strong in patriotism, in fact, you really can't be a Christian if you're not big on the United States and 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 the alliance with Israel. That's what really characterizes uh, a, a Christian. We believe in limited government. Well, someone might immediately jump up and say, no, hold on. Hold on. We really believe that a Christian is someone who who is not so much the conservative, but is much more, uh, is much more liberal in their outlook. Someone who is, is, is concerned about the poor. Someone who stands up for those without a voice. Someone who is, who is really concerned about justice. We live in a country where justice is not really promoted. And, and that's really the message of Jesus. That's what a Christian and of course, then there'd be people jumping up over and over and say, "Well, no, we need to be more nuanced in that. We need to understand this aspect of of of, of the political spectrum and and this aspect of that and then someone stands up and says, "Well, I think what Andy's really trying to get to is we need to we need to see the larger view here when, when we think about what a Christian is, really historically, Christianity is in three major streams you have." You have on one stream, you have what is the, the Catholic branch of Christianity. And then there's more of what, what we would be, more the Protestant. I mean, historically, this is what Christianity is. And of course, in the Protestantism, you can break it down into the mainstream. And then there is the evangelical wing of the Protestants. And, and then though the evangelical, you can divide them up further. You know, there are Presbyterians and there are Methodists. There are Anglicans and Episcopalians and Baptists, and, and if you really want to be technical, you can break Baptists down into 1,900 different variations of of Baptists and, and, and so forth. So you have the Catholics, you've got the Protestants, and then, uh, then there's the other branch that a lot of people forget about, and that is the Orthodox. They are also Christians, and then if you really want to be technical, you can go even further east, more in the Asiatic uh, branch of that, you know, the Nestorians and the Jacobeans, and then we're all slack-jawed. Like, what are we talking about? And then someone brings it back to it and says, No, really, you, you know what a Christian is by what they don't do. And by what they do do. A Christian is someone who is against the moral degradation that we face. A Christian is someone who is against evolution, believes in creation. A Christian is someone who speaks out against the evils of abortion. A Christian is someone who stands against the LGBTQIA agenda. A Christian is someone who boycotts businesses that advance these agendas. And you can tell a Christian by how they dress and what they listen to and who they distance themselves from. This is what a Christian is, modesty, morals, and music. And I suppose there are many other ways that we could define what a Christian is. Now, I would say this, a Christian may be these things, and I would argue that in some of these areas, a Christian will do or don't do some of these things, whatever. But none of these things a Christian makes. You can define what a Christian is of various numbers of ways, and so could I, but Should not the founder of Christianity be the one who defines what a Christian is? We turn to the Lord Jesus and he makes very clear in his word in John 5, 24. And when he says these words... Verily, verily, or truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. And they will not fall into condemnation. That's the judgment, the fiery judgment in hell. They will not fall into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. It's passed from eternal death to Eternal life. So according to Jesus, what is a Christian? It is someone who has passed from death to life. It is a person who possesses eternal life. This is what makes a Christian. So we see right off the bat, Christianity does not begin with anything you do. It begins with what was done to you. When the Holy Spirit of God takes you up and moves you from the kingdom of darkness, that of eternal death, into eternal life. So I guess the question that is laid before you and me this morning is simply this. Do you possess eternal life? This is what makes a Christian. Well, that's good preacher talk. That's good Sunday terminology, eternal life. But what exactly is eternal life? If this is what makes up a Christian, what is eternal life? Well, again, let's turn to Jesus. Let Him define what eternal life is. He speaks to our sister Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, and He says these words, I am the resurrection... And the life. You skip three chapters later in John 14 in the upper room. He speaks to Thomas and in the hearing of all the original, the first disciples, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You fast forward three more chapters in John 17. Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, and he defines eternal life. John 17 and verse number 3, he says these words, And this is life eternal, that they, his followers, might know the only true God and Jesus Christ Whom you have sent. So, according to Jesus, what is eternal life is maybe not the right question. Who is eternal life? And Jesus says, I am He. If Jesus physically walked through the back doors of Beaverton Baptist Church, that would be amazing this morning. And rightly, I would point you to Him immediately but I could legitimately say if you walk through those doors, folks, look! There goes eternal life! Jesus is eternal life. So what makes a Christian? What is a Christian? Someone who has eternal life. Someone who has Jesus who is eternal life. In our... Sunday school time earlier, I took us to 1 John five thirteen, in which John tells us the reason why he wrote this first letter of his is for those who believe in the name of the Son of God that they might know that they possess eternal life. So it is no surprise that he begins this letter by telling us who eternal life is. It is Jesus. Before you can know if you possess eternal life, you must know the person of eternal life. So this is what I want to do. I want to preach Jesus this morning. By the way, I have no other message. We preach Him and Him alone but I'd like to take these four verses and just show you four realities about Jesus. It is going to establish our entire foundation for this Bible conference, but it's going to establish the foundation for your Christianity, your Christian faith. We're going to see, I'm going to tell you what the four realities of Jesus are here at the beginning, so you'll know as we go along. We are going to see, first off, that Jesus Christ is eternal. He is God. Secondly, we're going to see that this eternal Jesus has been revealed. He did not selfishly hide in heaven. He has been manifested to us. Then we're going to see the third reality is that he has been declared as the God-man. And then finally, we're going to end with, if all this is true, then Jesus Christ must be received as your Lord and Savior. All right? So let's look at these four realities this morning. Number one, Jesus Christ is eternal. To put it in another way, He is forever. He has always existed. Jesus Christ is God. Here is the foundation of Of the Christian faith. Now, before I show it to you in our text here in 1 John, let me give you the context of what was happening when John wrote. John wrote his first letter at the close of the first century. He is the last living, original apostle of Jesus. And there was a big, bad error that was creeping into Christianity at the close of the first century. In the second century, it's going to be a full-blown heresy, and it's going to get a fancy name. Gnosticism, obviously spelled with a G. Gnosticism, it comes from a Greek word for knowledge. Secret knowledge. Superior knowledge. The Gnostics, the early Gnostics would come across and say things like this. We have special insight into Jesus that the church wants to keep silent. They don't want you to know the truth about Jesus. Oh, but if you join our ranks, you'll be a part of the group that knows. Now, the Gnostics did not have a theme song, (laughs) but if they did, it might sound something like this. We know something you don't know. (laughs) What we know about Jesus is so explosive The church wants to keep it from you. If you knew what we knew about Jesus, it would completely upend everything you've been taught. Now, there were first century Gnostics. There are 21st century Gnostics. A lot of them teach in the universities of this land, the religious studies. They write books and articles they go on talk shows and lecture us that we cannot trust the New Testament. They say things like it these uh, books of the New Testament, they are forgeries. They have been faked by people much later, many centuries after the time of Jesus, and they just chose the names of Peter and Paul and James and, and Matthew and John to add legitimacy to what they were saying. You cannot know for certain what you've been led to believe about Jesus, but you can trust everything I say about Jesus in my book that's now on Amazon for 39 dollars And if you read my book, then you'll be a part of the group that knows. Some of the early Gnostic teaching during the time of John is that Jesus and Christ were two different people. Jesus, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, the the man, but Christ, the God, for a while comes upon Jesus and does amazing things, but then at the cross, the Christ, the God, moves off Jesus, and Jesus dies as a man. Gnostic teaching has gone through a whole bunch of different variations through the centuries, but the bottom line is this, Jesus is not God. We are all about followers of the historic Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, Jesus can be Carpenter, Jesus can be good teacher, Jesus can be moral, Jesus can be revolutionary, he can be social justice warrior, he can be a moral agent for good, Jesus can be anything but God. Well, John's got no time for that. As the last living original apostle of Jesus, he doesn't even say grace and peace be multiplied to you. He opens up, as it were, with both guns blazing. And he says, without hesitation, Jesus Christ is eternal. He is God. Now let me show it to you. Do you see how he begins? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word God. Of life. Let me rephrase what John is saying. We heard, saw, studied, and touched something that was from the beginning. Well, the beginning, what was from the beginning? He says it, the word of life. Does that sound familiar? For those of you who know your scriptures and know the New Testament, how does John begin his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Who is he talking about? John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's obvious, John, in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning of his first letter, he is talking about Jesus. Jesus is from the beginning. Jesus is the word of life. He is the eternal God. Now, He is from the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> Jesus is the one who started the beginning. The beginning of creation. The beginning of humanity. The beginning of time. The beginning of history. He existed before the beginning because He had no beginning. The great apostle would say in Colossians 1.16... Speaking specifically of Jesus, by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. The visible things, the invisible things, all things were created by him and for him and by him all things consist. Jesus has always been alive. You know what that's called? Eternal life. He did not begin as the baby in Bethlehem. (laughs) Have you ever taught children the Bible? I'm telling you, you have not lived until you have taught children the Bible. I was teaching a handful of six and seven year old boys. Now, that's real living. They had the attention span of seven minutes. So I was trying my best to get this across in a very short amount of time. And I realize there are some here this morning, you're like, well, I wish you'd do that for us. (laughs) Get to the point, Andy. Okay. But I was trying to teach them that Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. And so I asked, I said, boys, did you know that Jesus was alive before he was the baby in Bethlehem. And this seven-year-old boy, who I didn't think was listening because he was lying down at the time, but he said, whoa! And that is a whoa truth. He has always existed. He is the eternal God. He had no beginning. He will have no ending. Revelation 1, 8 speaks of Jesus. Or Jesus is speaking and he says, I am Alpha. I am Omega. I am the beginning. I am the ending. Which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty Jesus Christ is eternal. He is God. He is eternal life. The church cannot cannot give eternal life to you. No priest can give eternal life to you. No preacher can do that. Not even you yourself can give you eternal life. The only one who can give you eternal life is Eternal Life. Capital E. Now think about this. If Jesus, his If Jesus is not himself eternal, how could he give you something that is eternal? How could he give you salvation? There is no salvation in Jesus Jesus, if he is not eternal God. That's the first reality that John gives us here. Jesus Christ is eternal. But now let's look at the second one. Not only is he eternal... He is revealed as eternal. He did not hide in heaven. He showed himself in the flesh. Would you go back to verse number 2? The life, this is speaking of Jesus, the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. I like this word, manifested. It means to reveal. It means to make clear. Have you ever tried to download a picture on your smartphone from the Internet or or on your uh, computer at home and you don't have good uh, reception or good coverage? And you're sitting there and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And it's starting to come in and it's all fuzzy and it's kind of pixelated. And you can kind of see the picture of what it is supposed to be. And then comes that magic, glorious moment when it finally does all. And it pops up and you go, whoa, there it is. Whoa, it's clear. That's the idea of manifesting. You see, John can say, and I can say on this sleepy Sunday morning, Jesus Christ has always existed. He is the eternal God. He is with the Father. And it's kind of, I mean, yeah, we get it. It's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of pixelated to us. But then God shows up in the flesh. And it's that glorious moment that we see God in living color in the person of Jesus Christ, and we go, oh, now I get it. Now I see it. We see God in the flesh. Now, you and I can only read about God in the flesh. But John... He had an experience with eternal life that none of us have yet had. But one day we will. Did you notice how he puts it in verse number one? He says, we have heard eternal life. Have you ever imagined what the voice of Jesus sounded like? John doesn't have to imagine. He heard eternal life. He heard his teaching. He heard his prayers. He heard his conversations. He heard, no doubt, his laughter. He heard the voice of eternal life. But he takes it a step further. He says, we have seen with our eyes. What did Jesus look like? Well, you can purchase a a children's Bible where an artist has rendered what Jesus might have looked like. You can watch the latest and the greatest things on the screen about the portrayal of Jesus. This is all looking in the dark. John, with his physical eyes, saw eternal life. He saw the smile of Jesus, the tears of Jesus, the tender care of Jesus. But then he takes it a step further. He says, we have looked upon. Now you might be tempted to say, well, he just said we have seen him with our eyes and we have looked upon. Isn't he saying the same thing? No, this is slightly different. When John says that we looked upon, he's saying we the apostles. When we looked upon him, this was not with physical sight. It was with spiritual sight. The word has the idea of scrutinized. We studied Jesus. We watched him. We put him to the test and we came to the conclusion he is everything he claimed to be. You see, John was with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus stopped a raging storm. John was with Jesus with the maniac of Gadara as he, Jesus, decimated demonic power. John was at the grave of Lazarus when Jesus brought the dead to life. John was beneath the cross of Calvary when Jesus died for sinners. John was at the empty tomb when he found out Jesus was not there, just as he said. John was in the upper room when Jesus showed up again alive after his death. John says, I have studied this man. I have interacted with this man. I have scrutinized him. I have put him to the test, and he is everything he claimed to be. I have looked upon him. Then he takes another step. He says, we have touched eternal life. With the very hand I write this letter, this hand touched eternal life. Remember when Jesus arrived in the upper room after the resurrection, he said to John and the other disciples in Luke 24, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me. Have you ever taken your grandkids or your little children into a store? and What do their hands want to do? Handle everything. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Jesus says, don't stop it, handle me, touch me. See, a spirit, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. There is such teaching today that the disciples saw a hallucination or a vision of a resurrected Christ. John says, I touched flesh and bones after his resurrection. Now, with all due respect to the experts so-called in religious studies across our land, why should I listen to you spout your so-called superior knowledge of Jesus when I have someone who actually heard, saw, studied, and touched eternal life? I'm going to trust what John has to say about Jesus long before I trust anybody else. But even beyond his testimony, I will trust what John says about Jesus because my experience with the resurrected Jesus is what John experienced. Did you notice in verse 2, the first part, he says the life was manifested and the end of verse 2, he says it was manifested to us. The us here is specifically speaking of the apostles, but it is including all those who believe in Jesus. Simply put, yes, God was revealed in flesh to the world, but only those who believed in him actually understood what they saw and heard. No, I have never seen Jesus with my physical eyes. I will one day. No I have never heard the voice the physical voice of Jesus with my ears though I will one day but I have seen Jesus with another set of eyes the eyes of faith I have heard the voice of Jesus with another set of ears the ears of faith I like what Jesus said to Thomas John 20 verse 29 because you have seen me t- you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's me. I am convinced in my heart that Jesus Christ is God because he's revealed it to me. I have given my life to studying the scriptures. I have given my life to understanding this man Jesus and I have come to the conclusion he is everything he claimed to be but who am I, the God of eternity, would reveal this to me? This is nothing but grace. I wonder, have you seen that Jesus Christ is eternal, that He is God? That He is God in the flesh? Come to save you from your sin? Nothing could be more important for you to know. If not... That's why I am declaring him to you today, so that you might believe. The first reality is Jesus Christ is eternal. The second one is that he is revealed. Which leads us to the third. Jesus Christ is declared. Would you look at verse number three? That which we have seen and heard We declare to you. Oh, I love this verse. John is in effect saying, I have been commissioned by God to testify to the world what I saw of Jesus, what I heard of Jesus, and I'm writing it down to preserve it for the generations to come. And here we are in the 21st century, and we are still hearing from John. John was compelled. He was not selfish with the gospel he must tell. I think about John and his good buddy Peter in Acts four. They are uh, Acts four eighteen through twenty. They are co- the, uh, the the magistrates in Jerusalem. They commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, "We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard." Peter and John were compelled to declare Christ. So was Philip the evangelist. They had seen too much. I think about Acts 8 and verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Acts 8.35, 30 verses later, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto the Ethiopian eunuch. Jesus, whether in the city or in the desert, Philip preached Christ. So the great apostle Paul would do as well. 1 Corinthians 1 23, we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, I determined, I had a conversation with myself, he is saying. I have made this determination not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse Five, we do not preach ourselves, we preach unto you Christ. Ephesians 3.8, unto me is this grace given, Paul says, that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We don't declare a system of beliefs, though that's helpful. We don't declare standards, although that's a necessary thing for our lives. We don't declare a lifestyle, an an organized religion. We don't declare our boxes and our lists of moral do's and don'ts that we must check. We don't declare family traditions. We don't declare conservatism. We don't declare liberalism. We don't declare libertarianism. We declare a person who has come to save you from your sin. You don't need another religious experience. You don't need another set of rules. You don't need to work harder, longer, or better so that God will like you. No, your best efforts, your religious rituals, your moral goodnesses are worthless in the eyes of a holy God. We have accumulated all this heap of trash that somehow is going to get us to heaven Your iniquities have carried you far from God. You are currently under the judgment of God. Sin is too strong for you to conquer on your own. You need someone to help you. You need someone to do it for you. You need someone to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Take away your sin and make you right with God. Another John, John the Baptist, called Jesus another name. The Lamb of God. What does the Lamb of God do? It Takes away sin has the Lamb of God taken away your sin? You have no moral strength to eliminate your sin. That's why the apostle would say in Romans 5, when we were yet without strength, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man some might even dare to die. Oh, But God proved His love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There on the cross, He was punished for your sins in your place. Three days later, He rose again to life, because death cannot contain eternal life. We don't preach a better path. We preach the living God-man who takes away sin. And by His sheer grace, He has chosen to offer Himself to you... ...as life and Lord and Savior. He is eternal. He has been revealed as eternal... We have declared Him to you, which leads to the fourth and final reality that I want to show you this morning, and that is Jesus Christ must be received. If this is true about Jesus, you have to do something with Him. You can't be neutral. You will either receive Him as your Lord and Savior, or you will reject Him to your eternal peril. But you cannot be neutral. When we talk about receiving Christ, that is, as Jesus put it, the idea of repenting of your sin, renouncing your sin, turning away from your sin, and believing on Jesus, His sacrifice for you on the cross. When you receive Jesus, when you believe on Him for salvation, you receive many blessings. Now, in our text this morning, I see three blessings. You get far many more, but I want to just stick to the text and show you three blessings when you receive him. Number one, when you receive Jesus, you will receive eternal life. Now, that's kind of implied because if you receive he who is eternal life, guess what you get? Eternal life. But it is stated explicitly later on in this letter in chapter 5 and verse 12, in which John says this, He who has the Son, S-O-N, has life. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I could stand up here and say this, Folks, if you believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He will change your life. And that's true, He does change your life. But doesn't every religious faith claim the same thing? If you follow our rules, if you check our moral do's, our boxes of moral do's and moral don'ts, it will change your life. And guess what? You follow it, what will it do? It'll change your life. But here's where Christianity is different Jesus Christ does not just change your life, He gives you His life. Nobody can compete with that. You exchange your eternal death for his eternal life. Remember what we began with this morning in John 5, 24? Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. They will not fall into condemnation, hell, but is passed from death to life. Have you received Jesus? If so, you have eternal life. What a blessing. You escape from the fiery judgment. Heaven is your home. Here's a second blessing. John states explicitly in verse 3, not only will you have eternal life, but you will have fellowship with God. Looking in at verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. That's the apostles. It's the community of faith. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, when you believe on Him, your whole identity changes. The God of eternity moves inside you. You are joined in Christ to the Father. You are now in relationship with the eternal God. You no longer know Him as your judge. You know Him as your Father. You have fellowship with the Father. You have fellowship, partnership, union with the Son through the Spirit. And then you also have it with the entire community of faith. You're a part of the family of God. You're a part of the bride of Christ. You are pardoned. You are favored. You are accepted. You are His. You are His son. You are His daughter. And that brings us to the third blessing. You will know fullness Of joy. Look at verse four, and these things we write to you, so that your joy might be full. Your joy—it's not just yours only; it is all of our joy will be full. The reason we declare Jesus is so that we all might know uncontainable joy. Why does Jesus bring joy? Because when you have Jesus, you have found the answer to despair, the answer to discouragement, the answer to injustice, the answer uh, to war, the answer to pain, the answer to sorrow and suffering. You have peace in the midst of heartache. You have joy as the tears come down your face. You have access to the very near presence of God. This. And all He is are yours when you are in Christ. Oh, the joy that comes when you have Him. Why would you not want this joy? What has your sin, what, what lasting happiness has your sin ever brought you? Do you enjoy guilt? Do you enjoy fear? The fear of being found out? The fear of loss? Do you enjoy the shame? What lasting happiness has your sin ever brought you? The end of those things is death. But with Jesus, there is joy. So, I end where I began. Do you have eternal life? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? If not, what should be your response? Well, we'll let Jesus speak again. Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin. Declare war upon that which is taking you to hell. And believe on Jesus Christ alone as I have had to do, repent and believe. But I speak to other brothers and sisters in Christ. You have received him. He is your Lord and Savior. What are you supposed to do? Did we not just read it? Rejoice and declare who this Jesus is. Father, for the sake of your name, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. I pray for those, a non-believing friend here this morning who needs you, I pray that you send the Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of her heart. Show him his need of salvation. Be gracious to them. Give them the ability to repent and believe. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, oh, cause us to rejoice. How could we not rejoice when we understand who you are and what you have done for us through Jesus? And give us grace to declare these truths for the sake of your name. Amen.